Welcome back guys to the Measured by Success podcast. This week myself and David are delighted to have Dr. Matt Jordan as our guest. Matt is bridging the gap between science and coaching and has extensive experience working with elite and Olympic level athletes, while his clinical interests include ACL injuries and neuromuscular monitoring. Matt discusses his career path in more detail in the episode, but for more information on Matt, you can follow him at Jordan Strength on social media and visit his website at jordanstrength.com. Make sure to check out and follow us at Metrics Physio on social media and visit our website, metricsphysio.com, where you can read all of our latest blog posts. Make sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have any other suggestions for guests or topics for the podcast, don't be afraid to reach out and let us know what you'd like to hear. Now, on to today's episode with Dr. Matt Jordan. Okay. Welcome back, guys, to the Measured by Success podcast. Uh, today, we're delighted to have Dr. Matt Jordan all the way from Calgary on the line. Matt, it's great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Um, really appreciate the opportunity and uh, exciting to hear all the things that you guys have in the works here. So, thanks for thanks for having me a part of the having me as a part of your show. No problem at all. Um, before we get stuck into the meat of the podcast, Matt, would you be able to maybe just tell us about your background, what you're doing at the moment, and maybe how you got there as well? Yeah, no, 100. percent I, uh, you know, I, uh, it's, um, I, I was an athlete growing up, moved to Calgary, which is one of our Olympic training centers in in uh, Canada, um, and I was I met a guy named Charles Pollockin, which some of your listeners may know his name. He was a Canadian strength coach who passed away a couple of years ago, but really a leader in the field. Uh, and he was a strength coach here. And essentially that started me on a trajectory of wanting to become a strength coach. Um, I uh, did a master's of science in muscle physiology, uh, actually looked at whole body vibration and the effects on, on, on neuromuscular function, um, kind of early days in that, in that world. And then um, long story short, for the next few years, I was a strength coach, a few years, I mean decades, I was a strength coach for the Canadian uh, Olympic team doing, uh, you know, mostly winter sport, but also working with some professional athletes. And I uh, went back and did a PhD in medical science um, after kind of feeling like um, there was a pretty big gap in how we were looking at athletes with ACL injury. Uh, particularly from a performance standpoint and understanding that, you know, many of our athletes actually suffered re-injuries, you know, up to two years after their first ACL injury and, and sort of recognizing we didn't have very good, you know, monitoring techniques and our neuromuscular testing capabilities were pretty minimal. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that today, but uh, I went back to my PhD in medical science and yeah, now, now I'm uh, kind of still, you know, still doing a little bit of S and C with mostly injured athletes actually um, in sort of a, as part of our, 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 our team that are dealing with, with, uh, athletes coming back after ACL injuries and big knee injuries. And, um, you know, I'm an adjunct at the university, so I have a research program. I've got grad students, uh, do some consulting and, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a fun journey. Absolutely. It sounds like it. Um, bodes well for both myself and Dave that you're working with a lot of injured athletes as well at the moment. Um, so that's where we really want to delve in today is your, your background, maybe working with, with injured athletes specifically. And we definitely will touch yeah. on the ACL side of that as well. Um, and great. we know you've, you've done a lot of other podcasts and you've spoken about strength and power and performance metrics and things like that. So maybe this one, one might be a little bit, uh, a little bit different. Um, so maybe we're just wondering, could you tell us about your experiences working with, with injured athletes and uh, rehabilitating athletes over the course of career and, and maybe, you know, your, your mindset, your approach 
with regard yeah. to, to those specifically? Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. I, I, um, you know, it's, it was, it was ingrained in me really early working with Charles is like, I, I, mean, I always kind of tell the story. He gave me three pieces of advice and one of them was don't hurt your athletes. And I sort of recognized early on because Charles had this reputation for having, you know, taken athletes, professional athletes who, you know, whose careers were ended by injury or, or, or you know, um, you know, something significant along those lines. And Charles had this reputation for, you know, reconditioning them and rebuilding them back to, you know, better than they were before. And so really early on, I had this sense of, you know, a complete, a complete strength coach or performance coach would have the capacity to take an athlete who was injured and, and help them get back, not just to, you know, out of pain or sort of, you know, daily activities of living, but like they could actually get back to, you know, performance, you know, even better than they were before. And so, um, you know, from there, I think it was always a part of what I was doing. And anybody who's worked in high performance sport, I mean, it's just a reality, right? Like athletes are pushing their bodies to the limit. And, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're doing that, injuries happen. Um, and uh, one sport that I've worked a lot with over the years is alpine ski racing. And alpine ski racing is notorious for, um, for knee injuries. It's a, it's a high risk sport to begin with. I mean, you're, you're sending yourself off a, a mountain at 130 kilometers an hour. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a sport where injuries will happen. Um, and certainly, you know, ACL injuries are, are highly, highly commonplace uh, to the point where if you had a team of, of, uh, you know, 10 elite skiers, five of them would be, would have had an ACL injury at some point in, in the past. It's, it's just that common. So, um, you know, over time, I think where, where I saw myself as a strength and power coach and performance coach working with athletes was uh, initially, I would just say under equipped, right? Like I, I saw, I remember my first experience <clears throat> with one of our Canadian skiers, she was coming back after an ACL injury. And I just, you know, it was like, we, we could get them up to that point where you're like, you know, almost like passing the final exam of, of return to sport. And I'm using in scare quotes clearance where you rip through a battery of tests and, you know, you're like, Hey, you passed the exam. Congratulations. Send you on your way. And I remember getting that phone call, you know, about, so it would have been about mid say it's nine or 10 months. I remember getting a phone call about eight months later saying, yeah, you know, she, she's torn her other knee. And, uh, I just remember thinking, damn, like, what did we miss? You know? And, and I think that where my career is taking me after that is, you know, getting back in ski racing and, and, you know, we have so many winter sport athletes training out of the Canadian sport Institute, Calgary, which is the Olympic training center in Calgary, where, where we work, you know, snowboarding freestyle. I mean, we, we have just, you know, tons of injuries coming through the pipeline. And, um, honestly, um, where I am today is it's a, it's almost exclusively what I do. Um, you know, my, you know, my Olympic cycles that I was a part of as a strength and power coach and a performance coach was, was largely helping these athletes get to the podium. And now it's almost exclusively helping athletes get back to performance after injury. So um, the big gap we're trying to address is with our research is, you know, developing better tests, because I think a lot of times our testing methodologies are not really sensitive enough to really tease out where the athletes hiding stuff from us to monitor these things and and then ultimately to forecast so we can use the data to help inform decision making and you know i i i think that's a big part of our our uh, our improving our processes is being able to inform a performance team and then the last piece is hopefully develop better testing or better training methodologies to help you know to help athletes regain function after injury so that's uh 
yeah, it's been a big part of my journey. Absolutely. You, you kind of answered my next question there, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you kind of got into the, the ACL rabbit hole just through the nature of the sport and the athletes that you, you started to work with and then being so prevalent yeah. Um, yeah, totally. in, in, you know, alpine skiing and stuff has kind of got you what you got, what, what got you interested in the ACL rehab. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd love to talk to you a little bit more about these return to play, return to play tests. Um, and we know that you worked, was it the dual force plate systems that you kind of did yeah. for your PhD, right? So um, yeah. I work in a standard private practice, so I don't have access to any of that. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering what are the gold standard tests that you're going to be performing with, with your athletes nowadays and you have everything that you're going to need access to? And, and what would you be recommending that somebody like me be conducting in a clinic when we don't have this? And, and let's say, you know, I would probably maybe try and send them to a place where they yeah. can get testing done. But if some countries or some physicians um, or, or, or rehab staff don't have access to this, what can we do? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and it's funny you say ACL injuries and it's funny, like I, one of the studies that we published on Alpine skiers was um, we went back and looked at a retrospective analysis of the, <clears throat> the surgeon's operative reports from, from these ACL injuries. And we just found that it was just a high, high proportion of these athletes. Like the ACL tear was just like the, you know, the, it was just the icing on the cake. I mean, you know, it was these multi-ligament injuries and bone injuries and meniscal tears. And, and um, you know, these were really, you know, horrendous injuries. And, and um, you know, I think the first part of your, of your, of your um, answering your question is that, I was limited, right? Because, you know, you go into some peer reviewed paper and it talks about, you know, rehabilitating an ACL injury. And there's sort of these like notion that it's a clean, a clean ACL tear that, you know, is straightforward. And, and gosh, you know, I, I mean, I think we honestly have had one that has been a clean ACL tear, like a truly clean ACL tear with, you know, next to no damage elsewhere in the joint. And um, really what we're dealing with is, you know, I, mean, I think I'm, I think we're on our fifth or sixth full knee dislocation in, in the past, you know, eight years, like where everything gets blown apart. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard. And, and I think, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, specifically is I, as a muscle physiology background, um, biomechanics of muscle strength and power, like that's my, that's my wheelhouse for research. I have this slide I often use and I've got all the factors that affect how uh, muscles make force. And, you know, these are basic muscle properties, neural control of muscle, um, the type of muscle action. And, and I think at the end of the day, what I would say is that, um, I always found there to be a gap between how I thought about training as a strength coach or a performance coach and how testing was done. And so, um, you know, when you say gold standard, I, I think, I think we're probably still in the realm. If I was going to answer this as a scientist, that the gold standard still are these sort of functional testing methodologies that, you know, you, you do a triple hop and a single leg hop for distance and a crossover hop and, and what do we know from the current research is that it's, it's actually really not that helpful. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't like on average, it really like athletes can compensate, right? They can compensate and they can achieve the performance benchmark while masking all these deficits that are, are limiting them. And they can do that because of the nature of the fact that humans are highly adaptable 
and we have uh, degrees of freedom that 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 shape our movement strategies and i can change my strategy to achieve an outcome um and i can pass tests basically in the case of an acl injury so um, the types of testing methodologies that we look at are the ones that allow us to not only look at the performance, but also how the athlete accomplished the test. And to that end, I think there's nothing more valuable than a force plate because a force plate, you know, it's measuring the ground reaction force of the, of the, the injured athlete or the human as they're, um, you know, basically interacting with the ground and applying force into the ground to both accelerate and, and, and reverse the acceleration of their body center of mass. And, and to that end, um, you know, one of the key things that we, we did, you know, stumble upon, I stumbled upon it totally by chance, but realized there was a decent body of, of evidence and science coming up behind it was the dual force plate system. Because now you've got a really simple pragmatic approach to being evaluate, to be able to evaluate the contribution of an injured limb and a non-injured limb to to that, you know, acceleration of the body center of mass, and um, you know that that certainly, um, uh, Greg is a is a is a cornerstone test for us. Um, but it's not everything. Um, in addition to uh, you know, so jumping on the force plate, you know, and in this case we have two force plates, one under each, underneath each foot, so we we can look at that in counter movement jumping and squat jumping. Uh, we get at the force velocity capabilities of the athlete by having them do uh, loaded counter movement jump tests, uh, loaded, loaded counter movement jumps on the dual force plate system, because you know that after injury, it's not, it's not just your, you know, it's not, it, it, it's a, it's a, the basic muscle property or the force velocity relationship is impacted by that. So I want to know, how do you, how do you break, how do you put on the brakes when you're just managing your body mass and how do you put on the brakes when you've got 60% of additional load on your, on your, on your, that you're holding, uh, you know, in this case, we use a trap bar. Um, additionally, you know, we, um, we um, do a uh, repeated squat jump test. So we've got a fatigue protocol that we do where the athlete does one jump every four seconds for 80 seconds. So we can look at how asymmetries change from, um, you know, I would say a rested state to an acutely fatigued state. And it's super interesting to note that athletes actually become more symmetrical with fatigue, oftentimes because their non-injured limb is getting more tired because it's doing more work typically um, in that in that case. And um, you know, I, I would add in. I know this might be a, a lot of information, but I think it's important, right? The other the other thing we look at are, are quadricep and hamstring um, maximal strength and explosive strength. So we look at the rate of force development of the quadriceps and hamstrings. It's hugely important when it comes to um, especially managing the types of um, uh, surgical procedures that are done for an ACL uh, uh, reconstruction, whether it's a hamstring tendon or a bone patellar tendon bone autograph. Um, one of my graduate students, Nathaniel Morris, uh, Nate, he, he just finished doing a really cool project. He just got it published in translational sports medicine, but looking at how a uh, hamstring tendon autograph impacts the rate of force development capacity of the hamstrings and also correlating that with the, the structure of the of the uh, the morphology of the hamstring muscle groups using ultrasound really cool really cool paper paper but you know again it's it's a super key aspect of our our return to sport uh, testing battery and uh, i'll just end by saying you know uh, and your 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 colleague and and probably you know revered um, you know, physiotherapist and researcher, Dr. Enda King from um, the Sports Surgery Center in Dublin, 
you know, he, his work has clearly shown as well after all those things, you know, you really have to look at how the athletes performing the movement. And, and in this case, you know, uh, and uh, I know it's been using 3d motion capture to um, look at the strategy that's employed. And, and, you know, we're, we're exploring some IMU technology right now, uh, both wearable, that's an, uh, an insole based uh, technology called uh, a company called Plantiga that allows us to de develop these really, um, I would just say intricate movement maps. So when someone's walking or running, we can actually, you know, get a sense of the, the, the variability in how they move. And we've also got an IMU system, uh, another company that we, we do, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate to come into contact with is a company called Naraxon. Uh, it's out of the USA, but um, originally best known as an EMG company, but has now become, um, you know, kind of a biomechanics company that, kind of does it all. So they've got a really good whole body IMU system that you can use to uh, obtain uh, kinematic information from, from athletes. So that kind of rounds it out. I know it's a lot, but uh, I would just say, Greg, to, you know, I look at it as like Sherlock Holmes, right? I'm coming up to the scene of an accident. I know the athlete's hiding something from me and I've got to use all the tools at my disposal to uncover what are those deficits that the athlete's hiding because when I find those deficits, I can target my training programs to address those deficits. And this way it becomes less of like, well, you know, at six months I do this and at nine months I do that. And at 10 months this happens. And it now becomes a process of um, inductive reasoning. You know, you're going from observations with all your tools in your toolbox to arrive at a hunch or a hypothesis for this athlete in an N equal one game to be able to devise a strategy that's optimal for them to be able to progress onto the next level. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Um, very, very comprehensive. I love the fatigue protocol, and we might come back to that um, kind of constraints, the, the way you put it there um, in your article um, on Medium. You spoke about internal constraints, and I want to ask you about that uh, a little bit later on, especially with relation to the fatigue ability. But I'd love to hear, Dave, in your own experiences, that's a, an extremely comprehensive battery of tests there. What are your experiences using any or, or all of those? There's, there's a couple of things I think resonate with me and definitely agree with is that no two injuries are the same. Um, if it's an ACL rupture, but there's going to be, there could be a lot of other collateral damage associated with that ACL rupture, which is going to make your rehab look a little bit different, your testing look a little bit different. Um, I think as well, then you look at athletes, no two athletes are the same and no two sports are the same either. So the demands are going to be quite different for them. So it's hard to follow a protocol in that sense. Um, I think we've probably all agreed that the force plates are the kind of gold standard um but at the same time not every physio is going to have access to that so that's when hot tests yeah. become the yeah. kind of go to tests and even though they might not be able to necessarily predict ready to return to play or likelihood of future injury but what it does do it creates a profile of that athlete and how they produce and how they absorb force in multiple planes so you can start to look at that athlete and how they're actually moving. Um, so, for example, if you're doing a triple hop, it's a horizontal force production, horizontal uh, force absorption task. If you video record them while they do that and analyze their video, you'll get a quantitative score of how far they've hopped, but you can marry that up with how they've actually achieved that. Are they compensating um, or is there what's happening at the ankle, the knee, the hip, and the trunk as well? And is there anything there that we can train to uh, to improve that um i've had athletes before during acl rehab that look fantastic in kind of vertical hop tests and the vertical jump tests 
but as soon as you get them to go horizontally they're struggling so if i had never tested those horizontal tests i never would have known that um and when you return to playing football for example you need to be able to move in all three planes you need to be able to move uh, in multiple directions you need to be able to do it under fatigue as well so that's why i think having a wide battery of tests is really important um because you can expose movement deficits that you can then train your uh, you can gear your rehab towards rather than it being a score that determines if they're ready to return to play or not i think it's something that can guide your rehab yeah and you know i just i would just add in there uh, as well dave that like it's it's uh it's interesting that you know I, w- I would do these presentations um you know over the past year few years and and i would i would present you know the research that we've published on the dual force plate system and how we were looking at vertical jump force time asymmetries and, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, how this could be deployed in a real world environment and invariably, you know, the hand would go up and be like, Hey, listen, I can't afford a dual force plate system. Like what, what can I do? Or, you know, how, how, you know, how, is there anything that I can do? And, you know, certainly I was, uh, you know, the, the majority of the time my answer would be like, well, not really like, and I, I would go back to things like you said, I'd like, you know, you really, you really at this point have to use your coach's eye, you know, you got to just get a video and you got to look and you got to, you got to see what you can pull out from the, the analysis of your eye picking up on how they move. And, you know, I always, I always knew there was problems there. And I've got this example of an, an athlete that, you know, we, we, um, she was a speed skater, but I, I use her ex- as an example a lot, just sort of like how, you know, her body, right. And then, and just, you know, how she managed constraints and how she moved, it wasn't typical. Right. And I always said that the danger of just using your eye is that, you know, you have a preconceived notion of what movement quote unquote should look like. And the problem is that there's no one way that people move. In fact, they move variably, right. There's a, there's a bandwidth. And at the end of the day, you know, I would often notice this with, with more of our younger practitioners who would, let's say, go take a weekend course. And, uh, you know, I, I say like this, let's say this person's teaching about the pelvis and the spine. And it's interesting that the next day, all the, all of our young coaches who would have taken the course, you know, they see all these problems with the spine, right. And the pelvis. And then if they go take something on the foot, you know, the next day they come back like, Oh my gosh, all I see is the foot. Right. And so you can see that the problem there is it's confirmation bias. Like you shape your, your, your viewpoint is shaped by what you sort of know and what you're seeing and learning. And obviously it's a reality. Like I agree with you, we have to use our eye and we have to be able to, you know, hone that instinct. But um, I just wanted to mention that, you know, that's where, you know, I think wearable technologies like this Plantiga insole system that I've been working with, um, it's kind of cool because now you have a more transferable technology to the real world environment where you put this insole inside a shoe, you get the person to walk and run and jump. And their approach is to use like when you, if you can imagine like when, when your limb is, let's say when you're walking or running, your foot's tracing this, you know, this pattern through space. Right. And it's like, you know, you hit the ground and there's an acceleration and it's, you know, vertical, medial, lateral and anterior, posterior, and then you come off and you shape a trajectory through space. And the pattern that comes out emerges from this is highly complex. And it's interesting, like what your eye as a trainer is looking at is those patterns. Like you're, you're queuing in on all this nuance and information that allows you to pull out pieces that are, that are relevant. And it's the reason why, you know, 
new coaches or trainers, oftentimes they're like, I can't see what that person, that other person sees, right? Because they're, they're, they're learning to process all this information and complexity. And it's so cool that with um, one of the technologies that Plantiga is using is uh, deep learning, which is um, a type of, of, of supervised machine learning where you can extract patterns from the data. Um, it's how Google recognizes a, a lion from a cat. Um, but it's interesting to note that Plantiga is now learning to think like a trainer or a physio or a, you know, a strength coach by analyzing these intricate patterns that it's obtaining. And um, yeah, all I would say is that uh, you just, you know, Dave, you touched on a really important point that it's technological limitations, financial limitations. And at the end of the day, you know, I always say we've got to continually hone the coach's eye to be able to, to, to you know, to extract, um, you know, you know, extract information from, especially from athletes coming back after injury. Absolutely. Definitely. I think sometimes where it can get challenging as well, Matt, is when you're working in a gen pop, um, a lot of the tests that we might do and we discuss there, people would never have done preoperatively. So for an example, I, I have say a 35 year old male played five aside soccer with his friends once a week, tears his ACL was recommended for surgery, goes for surgery, and you get him to say the point where he can do jump tests and you're not just trying to, you know, get him back to function and performance and get him back playing, but you're also trying to coach them how to jump for a start, how to how to sure. land, how to do a yeah, you know, a depth jump, never mind a a double leg squat jump or a triple hop or a crossover hop, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's where you, you kind of start to, to maybe question, okay, you know, are these valid? Are they going to give me a, a clear picture of, you know, where this guy is at now? I have no idea where he was before, but he's probably lesser than what I'm going to get him to anyway, right? So mm -hmm. surely he maybe has mm -hmm. maybe a less chance of an injury if he's going to be better than he was previously, but um, it's just challenging, right? It's never going to get any, get any totally. easier maybe in that population and, and technology and everything's going to continue to evolve. The research yeah. is going to continue to evolve and the gold standards will probably change every five to 10 years. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I think that, you know, there, we can expect that. I think that we can expect that as technologies become more widespread and more available, that obviously things will, will evolve alongside this. Um, and, you know, I couldn't agree more, like sometimes with some of our athletes, the first time that they've actually really trained ever in their life, like properly has been after their injury. Yeah. And, you know, tell me that that doesn't change things like you, you're literally not only recovering from your ACL reconstruction, you're actually learning to train and learning how to do this stuff for the very first time. Um, and I would say that that's, you know, that's a complicating factor. And, and one of the ways I sometimes try to bin it, cause you know, you kind of need these heuristics, right. To sort of guide how we, how we make, um, I don't know how we make, uh, you know, make decisions around this stuff. But I think I often think about number one of capacities, which I would say, you know, relate to many times muscular capacities. So strength, power, rate of force development. Um, and, and across muscle groups, but also, you know, at the hip, knee and ankle and in movements like squatting and jumping, because I think on the one hand, you want to know, are there a capacity driven deficits that are shaping how the person moves? And, and the best example I could say here is, 
you know, you have, a, let's say, a bone patellar tendon bone graft, or you have a nasty ACL injury with some some cartilage damage and, and you know, other associated injury. And, you know, you end up with this persistent and crappy 25% quadricep rate of force development deficit that stays there for a while. That 110% is going to shape that athlete, that example you gave, that will shape how that athlete moves. Yeah. So if you are missing 25% horsepower at the in the quadricep, you know, in knee extension power, you, that will change how that person moves. And so you can coach them till you're blue in the face about how you want them to move. But if they're missing the capacity, they've got to get the capacity back. So there's the capacity driven issue, but then there's the, the movement strategy driven issue. And, you know, obviously there's overlap there, but I think the, I always think about it as the capacity driven issue is the strength power RFD side of, of things, you know, or, 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 you know, work capacity or whatever, whatever um, capacity you're, you're thinking about. And then you've got the ability side, which is how the person moves. And, um, you know, certainly, you know, that's the, that's the challenge, right? Is that we've got to figure out a way to take these athletes who oftentimes probably have never trained and are just trying to figure out that process and get themselves back. And it really begs the question. It's like, you know, if you have that athlete who's never trained in their lives, and let's say that your gold standard is a limb symmetry index where you're within 10% side to side, if that benchmark on that contralateral limb is a crappy benchmark, who cares if they're 10%? Like, I would rather have an athlete with two really, really strong legs, but they've got a 20% difference than an athlete with two really weak legs, but they're 5% different side to side. And, and that's, you know, begs the question like, well, what do you use in that case? And I think that's where I'm trying to flip it on its head a little bit as we move forward with, with our, with our research to say, I think what people really care about, and it was a blog post that I put out on medium recently about, you know, if we want to start uh, predicting injuries, let's start treating it like the, like a forecasting the weather. And, and what I was trying to say here is that, you know, injury predictions got this huge bad rap, right? About, you know, oh, you can't predict injuries. And I think at the end of the day, what we're talking about is assigning a probability to a person based on how they're moving and their capacities. And we've sort of changed it a little bit towards um, models that allow us to develop these normalized curves of recovery after injury types and being able to ask the question, is the athlete that I'm looking at before me after they've done all these tests and all this stuff that we're doing, what, where does our algorithms predict this person is in their recovery process? Because what I really care about is if the athlete's six months post-surgery, I want to know, do they look like they're six months? Do they look like they're 10 months post-surgery? Or do they look like they're only three months post-surgery? Because that's going to drive my decision-making and my conversations to say, really what we care about is, when are you ready to progress back to some higher risk activities? And so I think that maybe we need to change it a little bit from being, you know, this notion of, you know, we've got these thresholds and these numbers and it's left to right and it has to be within 10%. And, you know, cause what you're, what you're highlighting on is it's an N equal one game. And what I care about is for this person, how do they compare to other people who've come back and are they tracking on schedule behind schedule or ahead of schedule? So I can make better decisions and better, you know, have better conversations with my performance team about their readiness to potentially progress into a higher risk environment. And if they do, what are we going to do to sort of ensure that that progression and that next step is done in a reasonable way, according to their physical abilities and capacities? And, um, you know, I think maybe we've got a bit more work to do in that area to change it into more of a performance driven conversation. 
Yeah, that's a really, really interesting concept. And I'll definitely have to link your blog in the show notes here because um, it's a really, really good read. Would you apply those same concepts to your athletes that haven't been injured? So in terms yeah, of well, same thing or, or, you know, you might, might be primarily working with, with, like you said, people coming back from injury, but, you know, can people and can physios and SSC staff apply that same concept to the whole, you know, forecast of like the weather? Yeah, well, I think, I think so. Right. Because I, you know, what I, what I tried to highlight in that blog post is, you know, we are humans. We have, we have a, we have a, we are irrational creatures, you know, like we, we struggle we struggle with probabilities. We struggle with living in a probabilistic world. We're impulsive. We're fear drives things, anxieties drive things. And, and a lot of times we just don't act rationally. And I, I use this example in the, in the, um, in the blog post about, you know, what does, if, if, if it's your wedding day, let's just say, you know, your wedding day is coming up five days from now and you check the forecast, and the forecast says there's a 60% chance of rain. What do you do? You change your behavior. You know, you're like, oh shoot, honey, we, you know, we, we might need to get a tent. You know, we might need to encourage our participants or our, our uh, guests to bring, a, bring an umbrella. You know, we're gonna maybe have a plan B venue, whatever, right? If you get to your wedding day and it ends up being a beautiful bluebird day, you're cool with that. You're like, oh yeah, what's a 60% chance of rain? There's a 40% chance it won't rain you're fine with that. That notion's easy. If it's a 10% chance of rain, you're probably like, eh, I think we're going to be okay. Like these are, these are behavior modifying things. Right. And I think when it comes to this notion of what we're talking about, you know, for driving decision-making and talking to physiotherapists and surgeons and, you know, strength coaches and pulling the team together, right. To have good conversations. I think what we're really asking about is what, what are the chances of rain with this person? And, you know, is it a 60% chance, you know, a 10% chance? And we may not have all the answers to these questions today, but I think what it allows us to do, and, and I'll be honest with you, like this information to me shapes conversations, right? So, you know, it shapes conversations and it accounts for something that I know I have because I'm a human is I am, I am prone to bias, confirmation bias, recency bias, I remember stuff that's recently in my head. So if I take that course on the foot, everything today seems like it's a foot problem. If I take that course on the, the spine, everything seems like it's driven from the spine. So that's, you know, I remember what's more recent. I, I tend to confirm things that are important to me and I tend to ignore the facts that don't fit with my current line of thinking. And I think what we're doing with this stuff, in my opinion, is we're using this to account for that fact. And so when we're sitting down with an athlete and we're going to have a conversation about whether this person is ready to return to a high risk environment, we're going to have a conversation like, what are the chances of, of rain on our wedding day, honey? And is it 60% or is it 10%? And how's that going to shape what we're going to do? And sometimes we might have a conversation that goes like, geez, wow, you know, we sat down as a group and hey, it looks like it's a 60% chance of rain. It doesn't mean it's going to rain. It's a 40% chance it won't rain. But that might drive a conversation with an athlete to say, hey, listen, you know what? This is a non-Olympic year. There's nothing riding on this year. What if we took another four weeks here and addressed some of these gaps that we're seeing in your testing? What if we took four weeks? You know, what difference does it make to, to, to the big picture? And the athlete says, you know, and we're always careful. Hey, take 24 hours to think about it. Don't, you don't have to come back 
you don't have, I'm not telling you, you know, yes or no, it's your body, you know, and they come back, no, you know what, you're right. You should probably take, let's take the next four weeks and work on these things that we found. And, and, you know, when they come back four to six weeks later and we retest them and things are starting to look like a non-injured population or like their pre-injury data or like a good benchmark, right. That we have, I think at the end of the day, you know, maybe we've brought it down to a 20% chance of rain. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. And, and to your point, you know, I think you, you asked part of the question was, well, like, how do we apply this with non-injured athletes? And I think the answer is the same thing. There is an, there is a, there is a risk profile that we are trying to, I guess, maybe understand knowing that it's complex and knowing that it's not one thing. And I think at the end of the day, if you took a group of athletes and put them through a series of tests and your test said, Hey, you know, you look like you've had an injury or you look like somebody who's, you know, eight months after an ACL injury, but you've never had an injury before. What does that do for us? It drives a conversation. And, and we now are right back to the example where we've just looked at the weather forecast, our weddings in five days, and the forecaster has said there's a 60% chance of rain, and we're going to start doing a few things to mitigate that. And in the same way, when we find that profile, that's like, yeah, you don't look like the rest, and you look almost like this person who's injured, we're all going to sit down as a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary group of professionals, and we're going to strategize on what we can do to mitigate the things that we found and potentially give this athlete more bandwidth so that they can better solve problems on the field of play, have the capacity to deal with the energies that are coming into their body um, that are you know, potentially going to lead to joint injuries, and um, at the end of the day, hopefully make them a better athlete, perform better. You know, if I can... If I, if I can address that 20% gap in rate of force development in my left quadricep muscle group, uh, maybe that means that not only am I able to generate forces more quickly to dissipate that external energy that's going to potentially tear my ACL, but maybe if I've got to jump off my left leg because something happened in the, in the field of play, I actually jump a little higher and I jump a little faster because I've actually got that back. And, and it never, you know, in, injuries aside, you know, hopefully I've, I've become a better athlete because of, of, of that process. So, yeah, I think that there's some really interesting questions that, that we're talking about here. And I also think that it actually ties heavily into philosophy or psychology of humans, right? Like how do we think about problems and, and how do we use information and how do we use data to drive decision making? Yeah, I was going to say the pers- perspective and the way you look at it is probably important as well. What were you going to say there, Dave? Totally. Way in, I think we're, we're, we're talking about kind of sort of trying to quantify risk with the, the 60, 40, or the 80, 20. And something that kind of consistently comes across there is you don't know if it's 60 or 40 or 80, 20 or 90, 10 yeah. unless you have the right tests for the right injury for the right athlete. And if you're not continuously yeah. measuring them, and ideally you're getting those tests done over a broad spectrum. So you're getting them done pre-injury and then also post-injury so you can look back over a wide span of time and see yeah. how it's varied and then start to weigh up those risks and um, that's why totally. i think some good articles coming out it's a tom hughes from manchester united who looked at the the pre-season screening and how it doesn't really predict um muscle injury rates right. and and i think that's where maybe the more weekly based screening or even daily based screening yeah. might add more value because like I said we're human beings like our sleep our nutrition will vary day to day and they can all be factors that might increase or lower our risk of injury on that given day yeah 
Oh yeah. I mean, that's, you know what, that, 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 that is exactly it to me. It is complex. So to think that you're going to do a pre-injury or a pre-season test, let's say that's, you know, season starts up at September 1st, right? So what are we, August 25th to think that I'm going to go do a bunch of pre-season testing today, you know, like test all these different things. And, you know, we're going to look across everything and you're going to go out and play. And then in November you hurt yourself to think that what I measured today is going to inform me meaningfully about what happens in November sort of seems to me like I'm going to look at the weather patterns today and I'm going to see if I can predict what the weather will be like um, as we approach Christmas, you know, because today, you know, I'm going to use all this complexity and say, well, you know, clouds are like this and winds like that. And this is happening like this. And no, you know, and I'm going to use that and I'm going to try to inform some distant event that already when we look at injuries is, is highly complex because number one, you've got, you know, you've got to have some sort of predisposing elements potentially, right. Or maybe not, you've got to be exposed. And, and that's another thing too. Like if I'm exposed more, there's just a greater chance of me getting hurt. Right. So it's, it's like, if I don't play the game, I'm not going to get hurt. So if I'm sitting on the bench, like the exposure is less, right. So you have an exposure, then you got to have an inciting event you know, and some sort of like thing has to happen. That's going to sort of tee up this, this, this injury event. And then I've got a probability of it causing an injury or not. And it's still not a certainty. And I think at the end of the day, that's the challenge that we have is that we're treating injury prediction the wrong way. And, and I would argue that what we want to do is we want to forecast and we want to treat it like a weather. So we want to get better measurements closer, you know, more of a monitoring approach rather than a preseason physical or baseline. Um, I think we want to use this like Sherlock Holmes. So look for clues that can inform your decision-making process a bit better about training. So it's not about a preseason being like, I'm trying to predict injury. Like, and that's another challenge I always have too, is that the reason we could never do those types of studies is that if I take a group of athletes and I test them out and I find that, you know, let's say 50% of them have a hamstring strength deficit of 30%, hypothetically. Nine times out of 10, like once the athlete knows that and once the trainers know that, they're going to go and start addressing this stuff. And so, you know, that's not going to, it's not going to eliminate injuries. All it's doing is it's, it's, you know, increasing something that's not typically seen in an athlete group, which is a 30% different side to side and hamstring strength. Whether or not that prevents injury, I think is the wrong question. I think it's about, you know, um, you know, it's about increasing physical capacities, increasing um, physical abilities. And obviously, you know, we've got a long way to go to get to a place where we can meaningfully predict. But I think, you know, you know, I really think that we have to start asking the right questions around this stuff. And I know with our return to sport discussions after injury, which is, you know, the, the question we're asking ourselves that we care about, are you tracking according to our, you know, according to our expectations, ahead of expectations or behind expectations because that actually starts coming in really early on in the conversations with coaches to be like hey this person's behind right now what we would expect so manage our expectations about when this person might be ready to get back for a high-risk environment um, and we're using the information to identify and pinpoint trainable deficits so if i know what's there i can actually prescribe training to fix it you know or to address it and importantly it's helping us shape our understanding about how to inform the, the transition points, not the clearance, not the return to play, 
it's a transition. So you're transitioning this person from a clinical environment to a training environment, to a sports specific environment, to, you know, to high training, to competition. And those transitions need to be sort of carefully managed so that if the person is progressing well or begins to regress, you know, we can change what we're doing. And uh, to that end, I think, you know, I think maybe you're, you were alluding to this is that I feel the community is, is collectively, you know, starting to really think about, were we even asking the right question about this? And, you know, maybe we need to kind of change our focal point for how we're using this as practitioners um, uh, to be able to make it meaningful. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that definitely. And just to add one little last point on that topic is when it comes to like a preseason physical, there's still some merit to it because players will come in 100%. fresh. They'll come in fresh when they might not never be. They might not be 100 fresh again during that season. That's 100. I find that you can actually collect some meaningful baseline data for them, which will only serve to inform you later down the line. It might not predict injury. But if they do pick up an injury, I have good baseline data for them that I can now work towards again um, in their injury rehab. And then the other thing as well is it might identify some changeable deficits, which you, which you alluded to. So if you identify a hamstring mm-hmm. deficit, you can tailor their strength conditioning towards that. So there is some merit the overall. Um, we're probably shifting a little bit towards a more of a weekly monitoring system and that injury prediction is very complex rather than just a preseason yeah. screen season screen. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean to be absolutely 110% clear. I think that the healthy baseline fit to train fit to compete assessment, which typically happens before people really start engaging in heavy training is, you know, is critical because, you know, we've found athletes with high cholesterol, we found athletes with heart arrhythmias. We find athletes that might be predisposed to uh, relative energy deficiency in sport type um, scenarios. So energy deficiency issues. Um, we find athletes with the physical capacity deficits. Um, we find athletes with range of motion deficits. These are, these are things that you are not going to find if you are not looking for them in a systematic way. And certainly that healthy baseline is asking the question, you know, do I meet the base level of health requirement to be able to meet the demands of the stuff I'm going to ask my body to do? And, and clearly we understand that, like, again, let's just say that the risk profile, think about blue chips and red chips. And I don't know the answer to this question, but let's just say at worst, you think, you, you know, you got a bucket of blue chips and red chips, you pull a blue chip, you're good. You get a red chip, you're hurt. Let's just say that it, you know, if you think about the prevalence of injuries, like I always go back to ski racing because I I know those stats best. Um, It's roughly five to six skiers per hundred per season that suffer an ACL tear. So let's just kind of convert that into numbers of a team. Let's say you've got a, a team of 20 skiers. Let's just say that there's one to two red chips in that bucket of blue chips. Like right out of the gates, that's not a crazy risk profile. You know, I'd, I'd reach in there. I'd grab yeah. a, I'd probably will get a blue chip. It's probably going to be okay. But it actually is pretty high when you compare it to other sports. And we know that this is a big injury and it impacts. And we can actually do stuff to mitigate that risk profile. So let's say at worst, you know, you've got a risk profile. And instead of pulling out of the bucket with one to two red chips per 20, uh, you know, you've got, let's say you've got five red chips in there. 
right? Which is, a, it's like a, you know, in this case, we're talking almost a, you know, a twofold increase in your risk, right? It's a, it's a big increase, like you're way up. I think that's a, it's a massive increase in risk, but it's still, you know, five red chips in this bucket of, of, of you know, 20, 20 chips. And so you're going to reach in there and you're going to pull out. You're still probably going to get a blue chip. So I think a lot of the times when we talk about prediction, I guess the issue is that these events are not happening at like, you know, 90% of the time or 80% of the time. And because of that, you need huge numbers to be able to really study it. And I just don't think that we're equipped to answer the questions the way that we're asking them. So we have to maybe change the question a little bit, which I think is exactly what you just alluded to. You know, we still have value for doing all this stuff, but we're changing the question so that we're making this meaningful and not getting down a rabbit hole that will be tough to get out of. Yeah, absolutely. You've alluded to um, your work with Plantiga and we, we recently completed, completed an interview with uh, the CFO or Greg, sorry, jump in there. What's his title? Is it CSO, the chief scientific officer. Yeah. Yeah. CSO of a new wearable technology company, which is kind of trying to bridge that gap between the kind of high performance sport environment and the private practice environment so that physios and SNC coaches and private practices can measure these things um, with yeah. greater ease. Just wondering for you then, what would, if you were giving any advice, what, um, what pieces of technology would you um, advise in order to get the most bang for your book as such? Like, Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, this is a, I think this is important, right? This is a really important question. So when we talk about the types of questions that practitioners need to be asking, the question about, hey, I think I'm going to use some technology here. What should I do? Where should I go? What's my process? I think that is a very, very important thing to put attention on. Um, you know, number one, um, number one piece of information that I think that we need to determine for this whole point about technology and new systems or new whatever, what is the validity and what is the reliability? And I know that this is a lot of times with people that aren't really science-based, they, they come like, why was that? I think I remember learning about that sometime, but it is so important. And I'm not saying, is it valid and is it reliable? I'm asking what is the validity and what is the reliability? Because I think we would accept a wearable technology that had 80% accuracy um, because it, it's easier to use. And it's, and we would, we would be like, Hey, there's a bit more error in this than our gold standard measure in, in, in the, you know, in, in, the, in the lab, but it, we can get on the field of play and we accept a little bit more room margin of error because of the fact that it's a wearable. So validity to me, I always think about a dartboard and I think about the bullseye. And if your intention is to hit the bullseye, your, your accuracy, your validity is how, you know, in, in simple terms, I, I know I'm oversimplifying because there's lots of different types of validity and, and I just don't want to go there, you know, just to keep it kind of Cole's notes for somebody who's just trying to figure it out. But basically, do your darts hit the bullseye? Or do your darts miss the bullseye, right? If your darts hit the bullseye, it's accurate. It's measuring, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's hitting the target reliability is more like how densely packed are those darts? Are they spread out around the bullseye or are they like tightly packed on the bullseye? And, and that's, that's the repeatability, right? That's the precision. That's the, rel the, the reliability component. Like how repeatable is that, is that measure? And 
you know, again, the dartboard analogy is just a way to kind of keep your head wrapped around when you say accuracy, when you say precision, validity, reliability, like go Google, Google it or look in a book and you're going to find a thousand different ways to slice and dice this. But let's just keep it simple for, for the purposes of a practitioner who's trying to make this meaningful. Um, I think you've got to figure those two things out. And so to that end, um, I know with these wearable technologies that there are um, there's a lot of variability in answering those two pieces. And uh, certainly if I was going to sit down with a company and they were going to propose a new technology, I'd be like, do you have either published literature, which would be fantastic done by a third party? Um, or do you have um, white papers done internally that I can scrutinize? Like, I mean, just because a company does a white paper on the validity and reliability of their technology doesn't mean it's crap. Like, you know, it just means you as a reader have to be a little bit more scrutinizing of the data. Right. You can't just be like, because at least with a peer reviewed process, three other independent people have read this paper before it's been published. Yeah. And you still have to read it extremely carefully. Right. I'm not saying you don't, but I'm saying that at the end of the day, if it's a white paper, it's never been peer reviewed. I'm going to be reading that thing like extremely closely to try and make sure that I'm understanding what I'm getting myself into. Um, understanding those two components, the next question I think that practitioners need to ask. Um, is it sensitive? So is it changing accordingly to uh, things that you care about? And, and again, this is, a, this is a more complicated question because you need as a practitioner to have some anchor points. So let's say you're interested in, does this technology help me in managing injuries? My first question after I've looked at the validity and reliability of the technology is, does this technology, if I do this test, does it distinguish an injured group from a non-injured group? Is there a, is there, is there, um, um, is there, a, is there a, um, uh, a way, and, and sometimes this is called construct validity, right? But like, does, does it discriminate between, you know, things I care about? You know, maybe you're looking at it to monitor performance fatigability, you know, fatigue, right, over, over training. I'm going to anchor this to training load. Does this tell me about things that might be sort of um, expected to occur in, in that type of a scenario? And, and after I think that you've kind of got that, that ability to understand that, like, does it, does it do what you need it to do? You might ask, you know, is it sensitive to change over time? Like, is it showing you and allowing you to see things that are important for you to see given the context that you're in? Um, and, you know, to that end, I would just, I would just say that the other, you know, the other points that I'm really big on with these technologies is that if it's only giving you a performance output, you're really not much better than, you know, uh, jump mat, um, a tape measure, a stopwatch, like all that stuff is great, right? Like, I mean, you know, maybe the technology is like, Hey, I hate using that stopwatch, right? I hate putting on tape measure all the time. It's a real pain in the butt. But, you know, if, if you really want to make a technology have value, it's got to be able to extract insight. Like, how is that person accomplishing that task for me to sort of get excited about it? And um, I know this is a space that is growing quickly. Um, it's, you know, you can buy Acceler or IMU units from, you know, from overseas for cheap. Um, it does not take a rocket scientist to encase these in some plastic and slap some Velcro on it and put it on your body. But all I can tell you is that there is way more to it than that. You know, being able to get time synchronization if you've got two units, like in the case of Plantiga, they've got an IMU underneath each foot. So it's actually a, not a trivial problem to make sure that in time, the left and the right are at the same point in time, right? 
because sometimes they drift or they are not time synchronized. And then your left is not synchronized with the right. That means all your temporal measures are off, right? It's a big problem. Um, data loss, uh, Bluetooth technology. The problem with Bluetooth is that you're transmitting data. You've got to be close to your Bluetooth receiver. You got limitations on sampling frequency. You've got all these other challenges and data gets lost in the ether and that's a problem. So these are all, I would say, not trivial problems for, for us to sort of answer the question about like, what would you do to adopt a technology? But, but I think that, you know, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that's what, that's what we need to think about. And we need to be asking the questions and where we are like, Oh, I, no, I never really checked if that's how they're doing that. Like, is it data storage data lot? Like what, what are those questions that we need to be asking? And, and hopefully, you know, I realize the question, the answer to your question, the question that you asked is a bit complex here and, and, and whatnot, but I think it's, I think that's what we have to do as, as people who are looking to use technology. Otherwise you run the risk of getting something that you think is a turnkey solution and you use it and you go along and you make all kinds of decisions that are going to lead to bad results. And that is our worst case scenario. So, um, you never, you can never stop thinking about that stuff. Tons to consider, tons to consider there. Uh, just to summarize, Matt, um, before we get into some of our quick fire questions, you've been very good giving up almost an hour of your time here. So just to summarize, could you give three key takeaways to any physio, SSC, or rehab coach in order to A, reduce the risk of injury and B, maybe the occurrence of such injuries? That may be difficult, but what would, would be three key points if you could summarize for us? Yeah. Um, I, I am a firm believer and I mean, I think we could talk about this, um, in a very injury specific way, but I'll just, I'll stick to ACL injuries because I, I think that's a, that's a place that, yeah. you know, I've, I've spent more time thinking about, you know, number one is do your, your, you can't flex your ACL, right. And your ACL is pretty flimsy, you know, a couple thousand Newtons of force and that thing, you know, it, it, it ruptures. Um, it has a limited capacity to handle high energy situations. And there's only one tissue in your body that allows you to actively engage it to dissipate energy. And those are your muscles. Your skeletal muscles allow you to, you know, to engage your body systems to be able to dissipate this energy because your muscles have the capacity in and of themselves to dissipate energy. Those are eccentric muscle actions. And also you have the capacity to arrange your joints to be able to um, absorb energy. And so at the end of the day, um, I always look at the capacity of tissues and I'm a firm believer that it's a strong athlete and particularly an athlete as well that has the capacity to generate force fast. Those are protective factors that I think are important to consider. So right out of the gates, you know, is your left side strong? Is your right side strong? And are they both strong and within five to 10% of one another? That's a, that's a key, a key thing to me that, you know, we can do with training and we can, and we can make sure that it's not that you just have enough strength and power to be able to mitigate the perfect scenario. But, you know, if you get caught in a bad position, if you get caught in a bad place, if you have the unexpected event, can you respond? Can your neuromuscular system respond? And do you have the tissue, do you have the capacity to be able to generate force fast and enough force to dissipate that energy. Um, I always say the second piece is that, um, can you solve problems as well on your left as you can on your right? 
And, you know, invariably we all have a preferred limb for, for various tasks, whether it's a control limb or a, or a strength limb, but can you solve problems as well on your left as, as you can on your right? And can you do it on demand when you're fatigued and when you're under pressure? So that, 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 that idea is from a great, um, he's actually a UK guy, Dr. Dave Smith, who's our, uh, lead of sports science at the Canadian Sport Institute, Calgary, one of Canada's, you know, biggest un unsung heroes in the world of high performance sport with his knowledge uh, and contribution to Canadian sport over the years. But he always says it's performance on demand, under pressure, when fatigued. Um, these are, these are key things that athletes have to be able to do. And so I want to make sure that you can solve problems as well as on your left, as you can on your right, when you've got those conditions and we have to train and prepare for that same way that you, like, why do I have to renew my CPR every year? seems kind of crazy, right? Every single year I got to go back and be like, it's 30 and two. And you know, yeah, there's some changes in for information. Sometimes it was 15 and one, and then it was 30 and two. And it's like, you know, it kind of changes over time, but really what it is about doing is it's like muscle memory, right? Like you're, you're training, you're preparing your body to be able to be like, oh yeah, right. I've done this recently. I remember this. And I think that we see firefighters and military and police officers and people, you know, surgeons, anybody who's in a high risk environment where they, their movements matter is they practice and they practice a lot. And so I think that we need to train our athletes a lot in varied ways, in dynamic ways, using that sort of dynamical systems theory where we manipulate task constraints and environmental constraints. We need to do that a lot so that they can learn to solve problems on their left as well as they can on the right. And you know, the last point I always say is you got to manage the, manage the complexity and the chaos, right? You've got to manage it by monitoring. So it's not, you know, we've already talked about that in this call is like, you've got to measure often over time, uh, use a performance team. Don't just let it come down to yourself and certainly move away from the model where the physiotherapist works in their clinic and the surgeon does their thing. And the strength coach is over here and no one ever really talks bring people together to converse about, about the situation and always start that conversation with the data. So present the data and then have a conversation that allows people to weigh in with their expertise uh, to be able to manage the uncertainty um, around injuries. And I think if you can do those three things, um, I think that that's a, you know, it's a, a, it goes a long way to help sort of prepare athletes, you know, not preventing injuries. We're preparing athletes to meet the demands of their sport and hopefully um, ensuring that they have the capacities and the abilities to meet the demands of those unexpected, unexpected events that may arise. And uh, it's not going to prevent every injury, but um, hope maybe one day we'll learn that it, it does something, you know, maybe does something positive. Absolutely. Keeps us on the right track anyway. Okay. Yeah. We'll get to, we'll get to three quick fire questions that we've asked uh, all of our guests so far. Um, you may, you may have had a look at them already, but, and we may know the answer to the first yeah. one you can, but we can correct you if we're wrong and it's not ACL, but what is your, your favorite injury to rehab and also your least favorite? Um, you know, it's funny. I didn't look at the questions cause I feel like it's cheating, right? Like the whole point of these rapid fire questions are they gotta be, you know, gotta be on your toes and you gotta just, you go, go with it. So I never read those rapid fire questions cause I want to, you know, be as authentic as I can. Um, so I have not read them. And I would say that, you know, I don't, I, 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 uh, I don't necessarily have a favored injury. I mean, I think where I have more, more experiences with knee injuries, um, because that's been by virtue of the fact that we deal a lot with mountain winter, uh, winter slope sport athletes, and they tend to tend to hurt the knees a lot. So 
um, by virtue of experience and sort of knowledge base. Um, it definitely is not that it makes it more fun. It definitely just makes it more that I feel more comfortable um, navigating those conversations and, and, you know, being, you know, being, um, being able to contribute something positive. Um, I think, I think the, you know, the things that are hard, uh, I'm going to say those lumbar spine, lower back, chronic lower back injuries are, are no fun. And, um, you know, they are, they are, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're tricky. They're debilitating. They, um, they, a lot of times are not like the science on what really benefits somebody with, with a, a, a lumbar spine injury. And I'm talking chronic injury, not talking like, you know, you hurt your back and you wait, you know, wait 10 days and you, you come back and you feel a little better and you're away you go, which is most people talking about those athletes who end up with that, you know, super cranky and, uh, you know, dysfunctional, you know, lumbar spine pathology, injury, movement pattern, whatever you want to call it. Um, I find them uh, very challenging and uh, you know, it just means that we need to double down on, on doing our best, but it's uh, I, I really feel for, for athletes who, who get themselves into those types of injuries. It's tough. I'd imagine 95% of physios would probably agree with you that those chronic lumbar spines yeah, are pretty know, difficult to treat. I Dave know. probably resonates yeah, with that yeah. as well. Um, okay, the next one. If you could only prescribe one exercise for the remainder of your life, be it yourself or for your athletes, what exercise would you pick and why? Um, you know, I, I think that I one of my go-to movements is... Um, is certainly the 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 trap bar is one of my my favorite go-tos um because i think that the trap bar um you know i'll be honest i work with a lot of different athlete types um some are amazing athletes amazing athletes man like you you could teach them to olympic lift in a session and you know they just sponges they absorb everything they're phenomenal but i'll be honest a lot of athletes i work with do not give a crap about the weight room and they, they would rather be out in the mountains and the mountain bikes and doing stuff that would be, you know, completely off the wall for anything that I'm used to. But I know that improving their, their, their lower body and their whole body strength and rate of force development and power are going to be important for them to hopefully, as I explained earlier, give them the capacity to meet the demands of their sport. And if there's one movement that allowed that I've found is, is relatively universally easy to teach and easy for people to manage and monitor is, is, is the trap bar. Um, and I'm, I'm using, I'm going to say deadlift, staggered stance, deadlift, um, trap bar, clean pull, trap bar drops. Um, I use the trap bar for all kinds of things like that. And, um, I've, uh, I've always, uh, I've always found that to be a versatile exercise. So I will, answer the question with with that i like that exactly that's a new one everyone go out and get trap bars for your clinics if you don't have one <laughs> yeah they're great they're things. great they're, i mean for for those of you who have never used them i mean i, I actually i use them all the, I, for my own personal workout you know i use my trap bar a lot um but it's just you know you don't have to worry about it's just easier to teach people who are let's just say either uninterested in the weight room or you know can't really muster the the movement coordination to be able to lift the way they need to lift to lift sound um and uh yeah it's a it's a good one so i pretty yeah. much give it to everyone in the gen pop as well that i see yeah, yeah i know can't go wrong. 
what it's I enjoy about that, um, that question most is we haven't had the same answer twice. And oh. the reasoning behind people's answers, like we've got some really creative answers and everyone reasons them really well and no one is essentially wrong. So it's, uh, it's just a really interesting yeah. question. Some great answers for that. Yeah. So. Last question, Matt. What three habits do you have which have contributed to the success that you've had in your career so far? Um, I would say that um, I actively seek and, um, and I'm not going to say I always embrace, but I try to embrace uh, critical feedback. And so I've always asked people in my career, whether it be former athletes, coaches, supervisors, mentors, what can I do better? And where do you see my blind spots? And um, I've done that through anonymous surveys with my athletes. I've done that through, you know, just interacting with people. As I, I, I think seeking that out has allowed me to know where I need to um, get better. And, um, I think that that's sometimes like, we don't want to ask those questions because we think, you know, well, maybe we think we're great and we don't need to ask those questions. Or maybe we think that, you know, it, it would hurt too much to know the truth. But, um, I like to, I like to seek that out. And I think that's been helpful. Um, the second thing is I've never been afraid to ask for extra help. And, you know, I can remember, um, in grade 12 English, Mr. Ramkeri Singh, Brookfield high school, Ottawa, Ontario. That's where I went to high school. I was a horrible, horrible, horrible writer. Awful. And he, he was like, yeah, you're just not good. <laughs> I was like, what do I do? And he said, you know, you got to start reading more, like just read everything and, and you'll start to, you'll start to learn how to, how to, how to um, write by virtue of reading. And it, it didn't really sink in, but I remember when I was about 18 and I was living on my own. Um, I met a really good friend of mine, not to get too long winded here, but uh, Wade Morissette. Uh, you guys have heard probably Alanis Morissette, yeah. uh, the singer, Canadian singer. Alanis, so Alanis um, has a twin brother, Wade, and I went to high school with them. So Wade and, Wade and I knew Wade and Alanis way back in the day, and I still keep in touch with Wade. But Wade was a very, ex, like, just sort of like philosophical, spiritual type guy. And he kind of sparked me on reading. And as I was learning, as I started to appreciate reading more, um, back to this whole point of the question, which is asking for help, as I, I remember enrolling in, in uh, a minor in philosophy in my undergraduate degree, and I was like, I'm going to get my ass kicked because philosophy is 100% writing. And I suck. And I remember just going in and telling the professor, I'm like, listen, I'll be honest with you. My high school teacher told me I'm a brutal writer, brutal writer, and I want to get better at this. And I would really appreciate that if you would just absolutely tear apart my essays and, and, and help me become better. And I remember this one, uh, like three philosophy courses later, the, the prof by the end, of this, the end of the semester was like, hey, I would like to showcase your thesis or your essay as the best written essay in the class. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh, imagine that. Like I actually learned to write a little bit. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I would say for everybody listening is that you got to, you know, you got to not only ask where you need to be better, but you got to seek help and you got to be optimistic that you can get better at stuff. And, and the last thing I will say, cause I know this is supposed to be rapid fire <laughs> is I've always tried, I've always tried to, to maintain the idea of, you know, appreciating that life is uncertain and 
just as the good times shall pass, uh, the bad times shall pass. And I've always tried to remember that idea that, you know, you got to put your best foot forward, lead with your values and, and, um, you know, do the hard work. And that will be the thing that carries you through life. Um, hopefully with enjoyment and fulfillment. And, um, you know, those are, those would be the three things I've tried to live by, um, to hopefully, you know, advance myself as I've, I've kept going on here. They've been working for you so far anyway. Um, trying. Listen, trying, yeah. Listen, Matt, thanks a million for your time. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. It's been great to have you on and great to get to know you a little bit more. Thank you. Yeah, it's been great, guys. Good, good to talk with you and best of luck with all your endeavors. Thanks again to Dr. Matt Jort for joining us on this week's episode. We would really love to hear your feedback on the podcast, so please reach out to us at Metrics Physio or via our website, www.metricsphysio.com and leave us your review. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of and what we could do better on. But in the meantime, we have some more great guests in the works, so we'll be back soon with another episode of the Measured by Success podcast.